Now, ladies and gentlemen, as you all know, today we are here to celebrate a birthday of sorts. In 2008, diversity was born. Today, in 2013, we are about to celebrate its fifth year of life. The underlying motivation for diversity is this. Many of our leaders, decision makers, influencers, and role models do not look like the population of the GTA. Change and progress have and will continue to be made. In the five years since diversity began, hundreds of organizations and thousands of leaders have helped change the face of leadership. And while this work is not done, we all owe Diverse City a huge debt of gratitude for their initiative and for the contribution they have made to the betterment of our city and of this region. This afternoon, we are very fortunate to be joined by one of Canada's leading pollsters, Nick Nanos, who will share the results of the first public opinion survey of leadership, on leadership diversity. Mr. Nanos will then be joined uh, or be followed by a panel discussion with a truly fantastic group of individuals. Diversity Chair John Tory, Civic Action CEO Mitzi Hunter, and the Chair of Maytree, Alan Broadbent. CBC Radio's Matt Galloway will moderate that discussion. Now, of course, most of us in this room will probably notice the absence of one important name on this panel, the irrepressible Ratna Amidvar. Uh, Rat Ratna has had very minor surgery and she is recovering very well. And somehow, despite her protestations, her doctor managed to convince her to stay in bed today. <laughs> she is recovering, though, very well, and I know uh, you will all join all of us in wishing her a very speedy recovery. So, yes, agreed. <laughs> now, without further ado, I would like to invite the Honourable Michael Koto to the stage to kick things off. Welcome, Minister. Uh, thank you, Allison, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. On behalf of Premier Kathleen Wynne and the entire uh, government of Ontario, I'd like to congratulate Diverse City on five years of success. I'd like to thank uh, Rodna and John and their tremendous team at Maytree and Civic Action for effectively shining a spotlight on leadership diversity over the last five years. I applaud the hundreds of organizations and thousands of individuals who have come together with a goal and the will of changing the face of leadership in the GTA. And uh, I know many people in this room personally, and I know the work that you uh, do uh, on a daily basis changed the lives of uh, many different people in this uh, city. Uh, I know people from my work as a uh, school board trustee and my uh, work as, a, uh, as, uh, as the executive director of a not-for-profit organization. I just want to say thank you for uh, doing what you do because you are the people that make the change in our city, so thank you so much. Uh, you're doing a remarkable job, and I just want to congratulate every single person here. Uh, the successes are clear. Today, Ontario has more visible minority members and people from underrepresented immigrant communities sitting in boardroom tables and in decision-making positions than ever before. It's an amazing accomplishment, but it's so much more than that. It's right, it's fair, and this is how it should be. Our government is committed to a fair society and a strong economy. We believe that every Ontarian deserves equal opportunity to be successful. Every person deserves a chance to reach their full potential, to participate in an economy, and to move forward and to benefit from our province's great strengths. We're making important progress when it comes to changing the faces of our boardrooms in this province. 
But there's more work that needs to be done. On average, newcomers arriving in Ontario with higher levels of post-secondary education compared to those who were born here, yet newcomers with degrees experience twice the unemployment rate than those Canadians with degrees. And two things that strike me about that. First, we know it's just not fair. And the second thing is that underutilizing the skills and talents of newcomers is actually pre preventing this province and this country from reaching its full economic potential. It's holding us back, and it's holding, a, uh, holding us back at a time when we really can't afford it because it's costing us. According to the Conference Board of Canada, this uh, underutilization of our talents in this province cost uh, this country 3.4 three uh, to $5 billion uh, per year in lost productivity. In 2012, TD Bank showed that newcomer skills were, if newcomer skills were rewarded on par with, those Cana with their Canadian counterparts, um, there would be a 30 billion income increase or 2% of our GDP. It's clear that a road to strong economic, uh, sorry, it is clear that a road to a strong economic runs right alongside the road to a fair society. And they're on the same path. And that's why we're making, uh, we're making things, taking things in a new direction in Ontario uh, by introducing an immigration strategy. So our ministry has introduced an immigration strategy that has three objectives. First, to make sure that when people arrive here in Ontario, they have the tools necessary to be successful. The second is to make sure that we at attract the best and brightest here. And the third is to make sure that once we get people here, we leverage the diversity here in the province so that we all benefit from it. Our government consulted diverse, diverse city as we developed the strategy last year. And we are now focused on implementing that strategy and turning those uh, strategies into reality. So it's an exciting time in Ontario. And I'm proud, to, I'm proud of the close to $2.4 million that has been allocated to diverse city by our government since 2008. And I'm very proud of the work that's going on here. You're the bridge between a fair society and a strong economy. This is a connection that must be nurtured and celebrated. And I know that your hard work is making a difference here. Ontario welcomes tens of thousands of newcomers each year, and we have residents from over 200 countries that speak over 130 languages. Almost half of the GTA belongs to a visible minority group. Our government values multiculturalism, we value the skills and talents that newcomers bring from every corner of this beautiful planet. These are incredible assets that fuel the strengths of our community, our economy, and our prosperity. We're all thrilled of the emerging talented leaders from around the world, and now we know that at the end of the day, when we take our diversity in this province, it'll really, uh, it really pushes forward because we know when newcomers arrive here in Ontario and uh, they're successful, uh, when uh, people from, uh, from different uh, visible minority groups arrive at, or have been here for, for many years and are successful, it makes Ontario a very successful uh, place to be. We know that it's an economic imperative and we know that studies show that the more diversity that's happening in business, in the boardrooms, uh, end up uh, making companies more innovative and, uh, and uh, it, at the end of the day makes them more profitable. So, I want to thank everyone for the work you're doing. I want to thank uh, Diverse City. I want to thank John Tory and uh, the whole team that uh, has made this possible. And thank you for having me here today. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Minister. I would now like to invite Nick Nanos to share his, the findings of the first public opinion survey on leadership diversity. Welcome, Nick. Uh, thank you. So I guess I'm the research warm-up for our distinguished panel. So what I'd like to do is to uh, set the context, so to speak. I'm going to give some high-level observations on the very interesting and exciting research that we did for Diversity Toronto. Now, when we talk about diversity and leadership, many times people talk about doing the right thing. We talk about making decisions that are fair. Be good. Be reasonable. Be caring. Be forward-thinking. Yes, all those things are very true. Whether it's ourselves, our parents, our grandparents, or our ancestors, whether it's because we might be different, speak a different language, celebrate a different culture, or practice a different faith, it's when Canadians have been able to share and celebrate their diversity that we have been strongest. Whether it's been respect of the French culture and linguistic minority in the past, or fast forward to today's spectrum of diversity here at home that captures the globe, our country is at its best when it's nurtured and embraced diversity in people and diversity in leadership. Sadly, diversity has been more a silent partner in our nation, in my opinion. There always, it's there, renewing and invigorating our communities, but without anyone saying our diversity is our strength, or maybe I say not enough people saying diversity is our strength. And it's so easy to fall into the trap of solely focusing on the be good, be reasonable, be fair way of thinking when it comes to diversity. Yes, we must be good, be reasonable and be fair and forward thinking. However, to that, when you think of encouraging diversity and leadership, I'd like to add, as my lunch colleague just said, be smart, be ambitious. Think of creating a world-class place to live, a world-class place to do business here in the greater Toronto area, the human capital in the form of a new generation of leaders, leaders who capture the vibrant diversity of our communities is, is there. They are ready, we are ready to contribute, to participate and very well lead Toronto to a brighter future. So should we be surprised when we ask the people of Toronto, do they get it? Well, it's pretty clear they do from a research perspective. They see the strength and diversity in leadership they understand that doing a better job at nurturing diverse leadership from different races, cultures, and creeds is not only good for neighborhoods, but it is good for business, job creation, and investment. In the study that we did for Diversity Toronto, those are the numbers to me, as a numbers guy, that popped. The ones that showed that the vast majority of people that make up the GTA understand that we should be linking diversity and leadership to aspiring to be a truly world-class city in terms of a great place to live and in terms of attracting investment. So let me walk through some numbers. And I'd like to say that the detailed report is on the Diversity Toronto website and also on the Nanos website. And really, we just recently received a snapshot from StatsCan on our changing population. And you can see that now, one in five Canadians are born outside of Canada or identify themselves as a visible minority, but, you know, check out those numbers for Toronto. 
you can see that in Toronto, the significant and growing part of the population really is among those individuals that capture the diversity that makes Toronto such a great place to live. But what do these changing demographics mean? It means first that the future of Toronto politically will be intertwined with diversity. That those diverse races and cultures that make us strong will also make or break politicians and political parties. That the success, second of all, of Toronto economically will be linked to the innovative entrepreneurship grounded in diversity of races and cultures. And the increasing cosmopolitan nature of our city will be a key lever for prosperity. So what do the people of the GTA think about diversity? First, and these are the four, what I'll say, buckets of, uh, of views that came out of this study. Economic benefit and impact. A significant majority saw the positive or somewhat positive impact on the GTA's ability to attract investment from other countries if we are good at promoting diversity and leadership. This was actually one of the top positives in terms of impact. Second, what was interesting, and you know, sometimes researchers do uh, sneaky, I'm not sure if sneaky is the right word, but uh, uh, they do uh, interesting types of lines of questions. We asked individuals about their views on how well we were doing in terms of diversity and leadership. And then after we asked them, we re-asked the question, sharing information related to a study that was done by Ryerson on how there is not a, an optimal alignment between the diversity of our communities and the diversity of our leaders. And it was interesting because people were genuinely shocked and surprised. I think the, one of the issues is that there's a level of complacency out there, that we tend to pat ourselves on the back to think that we're doing a great job, not realizing that what we have to do is to up our game as part of being a world-class city. The other thing that was interesting was that when we looked across the swath of data related to the demographic profile of the men and women and cultures and races that make up our city, that female respondents were more likely to align in terms of their views on the importance of diversity and leadership compared to men. So what does that mean? Does that mean that they're a priority? No, not necessarily. It's just something to observe. What it means is, is that we need to have a message, at least, that not just appeals and resonates with women, but that also resonates and appeals more and that we're more successful with men. And looking to the future, it was kind of interesting. You know, we asked people whether they thought we would get there, right? Whether the journey would get us to the destination of having a more diverse leadership. And they said yes. Yes, that's very likely. I think about two out of every three, or more than two out of every three respondents said that, agreed with that statement. However, what was interesting, and this is kind of a little your stat perhaps for the day, is that when we asked them, can you estimate how long it will take for us to get to this destination? The average estimate was 18.9 years. Too long, right? And I think that's one of the other learnings from the study. It's not enough to be important. It's not enough to be right. It's not enough to be smart. You also have to have a sense of urgency 
and you need to continue to have measurable objectives and to move towards those measurable objectives. And this is the only chart that I will torment you with today uh, from a data point of view. Uh, we ask people whether diversity and leadership had a positive, somewhat positive, somewhat negative, or negative view, and we're presenting the, the positive and the somewhat positive results, but you can see at the very top of the grid, attracting investment from other countries, being innovative in the arts, all, for all intents and purposes, all, a majority opinion among those that kind of identify positive and somewhat positive views. But what I thought was kind of interesting was that when people talked and thought about the benefits of diversity and leadership, it was actually quite practical, quite aspirational, quite reasonable, right? That if as a community, as the diverse community that makes that we are, if we have a diversity of leadership, if we can embrace leadership, it's actually very practical. It's beyond just what is right and what is fair, but can help attract investment from around the world because people will see Toronto as a place to invest because of the way that we work as a community. It'll be a place that people want to work because of the diversity of leadership. It'll be a place of prosperity and strong communities. And I think those are the key takeaways. Not that people thought it's the right thing to do and the fair thing to do, that people thought it was very practical and also could be a key factor in creating a very bright future, not just in Toronto as a place to live, but as a place to invest in Toronto as a world-class city. Now, we also wanted to understand how people felt about diversity in, in leadership unprompted, without any information, and then with information. And this goes back to the Ryerson study. So you can see, when we first asked this question, about 43% of respondents said there was not enough representation. And then after we shared the Ryerson study, that number increased to 61%. So what does that mean? That means that this Ryerson study, the investment in the Ryerson study, is a keynote resource to start a dialogue. Because you know what? If you don't measure where you are, if you don't understand where you're at, if you have no objective or benchmark, it's hard for people to contextualize because the default will be, hey, we're doing pretty well. So I think one of the key takeaways is that this study and the promotion of the study, and I hate to say it, the repeated promotion of this study, not as a one-off, but as an entree for a dialogue with the people that make up the greater Toronto area, in my opinion, is critical to the future and prosperity of the GTA. So despite opinion on current representation, GTA residents are actually optimistic. You can see, I know I said two out of every three, it's actually three out of every four, 75% believe that in the future our leadership will reflect our population. But as I mentioned, they don't think that it'll be overnight. I guess it's a bit like a slow burn revolution. And I'm not saying that we accept that, but I think that's where it's at. Yes, it's important. Yes, it has an impact on attracting investment. Yes, we want it. However, I expect that most people see this as a grassroots process where future leaders are nurtured and prepared today to serve the future. And this is where programs such as Diversity Toronto, the Fellows Program, is a critical incubator among a number of other tools 
and toolkits that are out there. So, where does this bring us? This brings us to a number of conclusions. First, we have to recast diversity. Well, I guess I should have started my speech by saying the opinions expressed are those of Nick Nanos and not of diversity or any other sponsoring organization. <laughs> so, first, we have to recast diversity in leadership, not just in terms of fairness, but in terms of our ambitions as a world-class city. Second, all the people of Toronto and our diversity of races and cultures are the building blocks for success. To not recognize and embrace the importance of diversity in leadership is not only wrong, but it is a significant missed opportunity. Third, we need to put a spotlight on where we are at and where we want to be. As they say, what gets measured gets done. We need to continue to monitor and understand how diversity in leadership can, should, and will shape the future. And as I conclude, I'd like to leave you with one closing thought. We need to move diversity and leadership from that silent partner where it, to where it should be on the front line, capturing our imagination, driving strong neighborhoods, attracting investment, creating prosperity, situated at the center of our aspirations, not a drag, not an encumbrance, but something that truly elevates the greater Toronto area. Thank you. And uh, now it's my pleasure to also introduce the panelists. So I'd ask that you please, I guess, I won't say stand, come up. Uh, moderator, Mr. Matt Galloway, host of CBC Metro Morning. Panelists, Alan Broadbent, Chairman Maitri, John Torrey, Chair Civic Action and Co-Chair of Diversity Toronto. Mitzi Hunter, CEO of Civic Action. Thank you, Nick. Um, so we have, I have a watch here, and I have it here for a couple of reasons. One is we have a panel of people who love to talk, and we need to keep them on time. The other is we want to make sure that we have time to answer your questions. So we're going to talk for 15 or 20 minutes, but I'm sure we won't get to everything. So we want to ensure that you have an opportunity to ask some questions as well. Um, I want to just pick up on, on a little bit of what Nick has said, in part because we have a room full of champions here, people who already get this, get how important this is, get what's at stake, and get why we need to leave here thinking about acting in a different way, perhaps, or at least getting other people to act in a different way. So I don't want to talk too much about um, the why, but I want to focus on the how. The first question that I wanted to just get through the panel is, is a little bit of, of, of what the purpose was in doing a survey like this and the, and the value in having these sorts of metrics. Mitzi? Well, I think you framed it very well, Matt, because it, you know, people understand by entering any boardroom, um, any sort of high-profile meeting, if you look around the room, you don't see a room that looks like the one that we have today. Yet we know our population is highly diversified. So we recognize that there is a challenge, but we wanted to really dig down a bit deeper and talk to the man on the street and to say, what are you thinking about diversity and leadership, and how can we change this? So the results that Nick has presented, um, I would say that that's a call to action, because there is a tremendous amount of support that is out there to transform our leadership. So, you know, five years ago, 
we started off with intentionality to change it with our programming and by doing the counts, but I think that what this is saying to us five years later is to keep going and there's a lot of support to get us there. John, what's the most surprising thing that came out of uh, this research for you? I don't think there are any big surprises. I think if it's anything, it's the degree of patience that people seem to want to have, the 18.9 years, and that, that is probably on the one hand realistic yeah. because changing things takes time. But at the same time, I think it uh, doesn't necessarily convey to leaders who are the ones that are going to take more of a role in solving these uh, challenges or addressing them uh, that it is something they should be picking up the pace on to, uh, to quote what Nick just told us. I think there needs to be a little more urgency than that to get the tools and to set it as a priority and to start measuring, um, just measuring in a way that sort of means you have some goals. Alan, for you, uh, the headline that comes out of this uh, that perhaps is something that either you, you didn't know about or was perhaps underscored by the research itself. Well, I, I, I think it's uh, what I found uh, not surprising but quite reassuring in this is the extent to which when you get beneath those uh, first level questions, and as Nick said, when you push to those second and third level questions, that, that people get the argument uh, quite clearly. Uh, there, there is a broad understanding of the value of diversity. Uh, and, and I thought what was particularly encouraging and uh, interesting was the extent to which people linked it to economic prosperity, mm. that they got beyond this, it's a good thing to do, we're nice people if we do it, but understanding that it's good for everybody if we get this right. Let's talk a little bit about what's been achieved in the last five years. You take a look at the numbers themselves. Uh, you had five years ago, a diverse leadership at something like 13%. It's moved to 14%, which is a move but not an enormous move. Um, what's actually been accomplished in that time, John? Well, I think first of all, the 13 to 14 doesn't necessarily fully represent the fact that a lot more people in a lot more places, government, business, and so on, are paying attention to this. And they've set some goals. And, and hopefully in the future years, if you did this again, which we'll continue to do, you'll see the number go up. But I think even more importantly than that, Matt, is we have taken some of these areas and said, fine, if there's a problem, then what we're going to do is help you to make it a priority and give you some tools or work with you to develop some tools. So for example, the lack of people from different backgrounds running for public office, what did we do as the diversity program? Set up something called a school for civics, which is nonpartisan, just says to people, we will put you through a couple of days of a boot camp to figure out how to run for public office. Right. When people said, to give you only one more example, we don't know anybody from those communities to put on our board, we set up a talent bank in effective. I think now it has a couple of thousand names on it of talented people and said, there's a talent bank, go in there, you'll find people who you can, um, who you can uh, uh, draw out. And they've made several hundred appointments out of that talent bank. So I think it's a matter of getting people to focus on it. And then I think really importantly, giving them some tools, working with them to develop some tools uh, to make this happen as opposed to just assuming it's going to happen because people say so. Mitzi, why, do you why don't you think the number has moved more? And again, it's, it, you don't want to focus too much on the numbers because as John said, a lot has been done to build a foundation. But I think people would be surprised that there hasn't been more of an uptake on this in that, in that window. Well, change takes time. I, I remember five years ago being in a room similar to this when we announced, and it was very exciting. But the reality is, is that change does take time. And there are individuals that are in leadership positions today that are now talking about diversity, that are now seeking out the ways in which they can support and really advance leadership. One of the other initiatives that we've done in the last five years is our fellows initiative. We have 100 alumni strong in that fellows program. And I'm absolutely convinced that these will be the leaders of our province, of our nation, and of our cities in the future. 
Nick used the phrase, or the word complacency, which I thought was really interesting. Alan, do you think we've been, as a city, as a region, a bit too complacent in this regard, patting ourselves on the back and saying, we've taken care of this, we don't need to move as hard as perhaps we really do need to move? Yeah, I, I think that's an element, and, and, and I think the, um, you know, while, while we have movement, and I agree with, uh, with Mitzi and John and their comment on this, you know, none of us are satisfied with the pace of this change. This is not uh, the kind of uptake we were hoping for. And, uh, and so we do need to uh, not only do, do this better, but we need to uh, get that. I think Nick used the word urgency. We need to have a sense of urgency about this. And, um, you know, it is true that change takes time. And, uh, you know, we always think, and my colleagues from the Caledon Institute here today, we always talk about a decade to make any kind of meaningful system change. And uh, so we're halfway there. What, what encourages me in this is that we have a lot more people now on these, uh, from diverse backgrounds, on these boards, the agencies, boards, and commissions, and they're going to be involved in appointing the next group of members of those boards. They're going to be involved in that nomination process. And John's made this point a number of times, that a lot of these appointments are made through kind of uh, networks of acquaintance. Uh, circles of people we know, and, and when you say we need a, a person to fill this function on this board, you immediately go to people you know about this. Well, now suddenly we have whole new circles of acquaintance involved in this. And so I think that's encouraging. And, and my sense of this is that while we're disappointed with the rate of change uh, so far, uh, we're not discouraged by it. Yeah. And I think what we're going to do is get some kind of... Um, uh, kind of uh, cumulative effect of this, and that in the next five years, it, it's not going to go from 14 to 15 or 16, but we'll see some more exponential increase in, in the, uh, the numbers. One of the interesting um, observations from the research is that women find this a far more pressing issue than men. Why do you think that is, Mitzi? I wasn't surprised by that at all, because I think that women have long been tapping at that glass ceiling, trying to break through, and um, you know it's it's relatable in terms of the the progress of, of minorities on boards and in leadership positions, and women have the same uh, conversations as well. So so I think the fact that women are four points ahead in terms of really embracing this issue and really seeing that there is value in opening up space, closing that influence gap and making it more diverse, mm. um, it wasn't surprising to me at all. I it thought could, it was interesting. Go simply, ahead, sure. It could simply be they're four points smarter than we are. <laughs> <laughs> I won't argue with you there. It was interesting. There was, um, we did a, a conversation on our program last week about the glass ceiling, and one of the things we heard from one of our guests, um, Sherry Cooper, former economist at a big bank, now economist on her own, was she felt that when it came to the glass ceiling, um, women got it more than men because men were the ones who were in power, and that there'd been a lot of good talk and not a lot of good action. Uh, politically correct lip service, I think, was the phrase that she used. Do you think that the intention is there, Alan? Do you think that there is the will to try and move this forward, uh, and is it really about power? Well, I, I don't like to kind of demythologize uh, boards, but I, I've sat on a number of them over the years, and I don't get a sense that people who sit on boards typically feel they have a lot of power. And I don't think there, I mean, some people clearly do, you know, chairs and, and chairs of finance committees, that sort of thing on boards. But I don't think there is kind of a um, robust exercise of power going on here. I think it goes much more to the lack of tools or the lack of available infrastructure that, uh, you, you know, it, it, it's like a lot of things we talk about in socially responsible business and, and uh, 
and various kinds of uh, you know, positive things in, in the way we run our affairs, mm -hmm. that people are inclined to want to do these things, but they don't quite know how to do them. So that's why something like a diversity on board mechanism, as John has described it, uh, it is really a, a good, useful tool. So should we, we should look at expanding the availability of, and, the, and the power of that tool to give people the mechanism. John? I think it's something even more human than that, than power craving or whatever, or, or maintenance of power. People like to associate with, work with, hang out with, in terms of their first instinct, people like themselves. Yeah. It's just a natural thing. But when you're exposed to other people who are different, you actually come to realize you like to hang out with them too, whether it's to do business or to socialize. I'll tell you a very short story, because it is, it is short, but when I was first told, when I was first in public life, that I should go and visit gay bars on Church Street, it wasn't, I, I, I was the most liberal person that there was when it came to respecting human rights, but I didn't think going to a gay bar was anything that I had on my roster of things to do, because I just thought I would feel awkward there, would they welcome me there, would I feel comfortable there. I went, and of course I was welcomed, I made many friends there, and have gone back since on many different kinds of visits, but it was, it's a matter of a comfort zone, I think, that people have to get themselves into, and I think that's part of how we have to help as well. Once you get the first people on corporate boards and other boards that are more representative of the population, people will see for themselves that it just adds to the robust and enrichment of those boards, and they'll want to do it more, but it's that comfort zone of people who sit around various tables who are like each other and just think that's fine. Picks up on, there was a fascinating conversation that was held in the city a couple of weeks ago, perhaps some of you were there, um, from a professor from Harvard, Mazarin Banaji, who was here talking about bias and talking about how one of the barriers to inclusivity is the bias that everybody holds within them and that there's a reluctance to try and accept that and to try and confront that because we like to believe, and maybe that picks up on the complacency piece, that we're already there and that we've kind of confronted that. Do we need to be more proactive as a city, as a region, in terms of addressing that bias, addressing a little bit of what John's talking about, exposing ourselves to different people so that we feel comfortable in that change, Mitzi? I absolutely think we do, and I think that you know there are certain segments uh, that have a, a responsibility. You know, the media, for instance, in terms of what are the images, what are the stories, how do you describe people? You know, are you always saying that um, you know this group is like this? You know, I, I think that there is a, a tremendous opportunity, and what uh, the study encourages us to do is to have the conversation and to have it in our everyday dialogue around boardrooms, around dinner tables, because unless we start talking about this then we often don't even notice our biases. How often do we even talk about this um, to those that you know, perhaps have never raised this conversation with us? And I think it's a challenge that we can offer to our viewing audience today to you know, take this conversation and start talking to people about diversity and how can we bring others in? How do we invite more people and a diversity of views um, as well as backgrounds around the table? One of the things that comes out of the research is that language is seen as the biggest single barrier um, the biggest single issue to trying to, to really tackle in a meaningful way uh, the diversity gap. How do we deal with the language issue? Alan? Well, I, language is an important issue, but I, I would argue that it's uh, to, to participate in society at any kind of uh, significant level, you have to you know, have language capacity in terms of uh, ability to articulate and use the language well. And I don't think that immigrants are the only people who have problems with this. I think a lot of Canadians uh, have <laughs> a lot of Canadians have, have uh, issues with being able to communicate effectively and be articulate enough to be successful in, in, in the work world and in the labor market. So to try and say this is an immigration problem yeah. 
is, is in my mind, the wrong, uh, wrong way to look at it. It's a problem we all share, and we need to be better as a society to bring everybody along in their ability with language and articulation. John? Well, yeah, I, look, I agree with that, because I think one of the things the school system has stopped doing as well as perhaps it once did is teaching people how to communicate. But um, it is a much more acute problem if you don't speak the language at all in terms of trying to find a job or get you, run for public office, be on a nonprofit board and so on. And I think this is, I happen to believe this entire issue of diversity and, and, and integrating into positions of leadership is the fundamental issue we face in the GTA, more important even than transit, which I spend a lot of time <laughs> talking about these days, um, because our failure to do so, and that includes giving people a facility in the language, ideally before they come here once they've applied, but certainly when they get here, those kinds of things, those are tools. And we will never, you know, reach our full potential. I mean, how, if, I shouldn't even bring up the Leafs, but if the Leafs took the ice <laughs> and only used half the players, you know, and the other half the players were sort of relegated to being people who we just somehow we can't suit them up and can't equip them, yeah. well then, you know, it's, it's not going to be a success. So I think the language thing for people who have come from somewhere else and who spoke a different language is fundamental, you know, to their ability to sit at any table to do anything um, at which they want to do and which we need them to do. As a recovering politician, do you have a sense as to um, how those in the political spectrum would be able to kind of grasp that in a meaningful way again and, and try and deal with that issue? I'll be honest. I mean, I think that politics today is so taken up with extraneous kind of issues and sideshows and, you know, various things, posturing and so on, that they don't really address that fundamental issue, which I believe is fundamental. We, we uh, back to Alan was talking earlier, he was very polite about how we congratulate ourselves on diversity just by the fact that it exists. Yeah. But then we don't say, well, all right, what are we going to do to make sure it becomes 5, 10, 15 years from now um, a huge advantage for us and that we are utilizing everybody and giving them a chance to, to meet their own aspirations, to achieve them. Because if they don't get that chance, then there'll be a lot of unhappy people and marginalized people too. And so I think that's why I name it as the top challenge for this area with the 47% that we see up there uh, that sort of are, are, are different, if I can put it that way, from the Canadians who came before. 5, 10, 15 years. What about 18.9 years? The majority of people saying that this will take 18.9 years. What is going to happen in 18.9 years? The phone that's in my pocket will seem like a giant brick by that time. Um, <laughs> How do we shorten that runway and accelerate the process, Mitzi? I was really encouraged by and, and interested in, in the changes in the demographics. Um, so when you have a chance to really dig down into the data, and I, I do think that when we look at our millennials and we look at um, our rising leaders that are coming up, I think their attitudes are different, and I think that they're much more open. That's one of the things that I'm taking away as a sentiment from this research, is that there is an openness to diversity. Yes, we need the tools and then we need the mechanisms, but there is certainly an opportunity for us to accelerate um, that progress and to really start looking at sort of that next generation of leadership because everyone is looking for ideas and for solutions. And, you know, the innovations that, that will replace that brick in your pocket <laughs> will come from that generation. And we have to, in, and I don't think that they necessarily are as uh, focused on this issue because they just went to school and, and went to um, different institutions with lots and lots of people from lots and lots of different backgrounds. I just wonder if you're somebody who's kicking on the door right now and you hear it's going to take 18.9 years for that door to be opened fully, what the message is to you, Alan? I mean, what, what, is, what is the cost if we wait that long, if we accept, yeah, it'll take time because change takes time? Well, I think Nick himself said that this is kind of a, a, a number that you shouldn't hinge too much on because uh, it, I, I don't know quite how he came up with it, but it's an average of responses, I would think. I mean, who knows how long anything will take. 
my, my sense is that if we stick with a strategy that we've always used at Matri of trying to intentionally collapse those time frames by creating instruments that intervene in it and just short circuit some of that, the natural kind of, I would say, lethargy in this case, uh, that, that we'll, we'll succeed at that. We'll mm. be able to uh, do a significant job of collapsing those time frames. Now, whether we collapse 18.9 to 8.9 or, or quicker, uh, who knows? Certainly, I think one of the big challenges, and, and John and I can take this back to our corporate colleagues on, on Bay Street, is to get the business community to really begin to step up and understand this is not something that they should just rely on natural time frames to look after but show some real leadership in, in uh, and, and I think if we were to do that, I think we would get a pretty good response. John, how would you do that? I mean, what, what would the message be to the business community that presumably has heard this in some form before, um, but hasn't, in Alan's words, really stepped up? When I have these talks, I move fairly quickly past the moral argument to sort of say it's the right thing to do, and I move very quickly to the business case and yeah. say it is massively in your own self-interest to do this, because the people who live in the GTA who are of diverse backgrounds are your customers, they are your shareholders, they are your employees, they are your future employees, they are the future health of your business and of our economy. And we saw people recognize that from Nick's research. Yeah. And so then I think you have to help them, and we're starting to do this now. Uh, we, we are starting now to sit down with the people on nominating committees for corporate boards and say, can we work with you to come to understand how important this is to your own self-interest going forward? And can we help you then? Because they'll often sort of say, well, gee, how do we go and seek out people from a given community or whatever that might have the qualifications to be on our board? And we said, fine, we'll help you. I mean, that's the tools and the enabling that Alan's talking about. But I think you've got to sit down first and make sure they recognize how much it's in their own self-interest. And then, just like we've done everywhere else, give them a tool or tools to help make it happen. I want to get to questions from the audience in just a moment. I have two further questions of my own. One is. What do you think um, people within uh, visible minority diverse communities should take away from this research themselves? I mean, because it's research that speaks to an entire region, it speaks to an entire city, but presumably it would have special resonance within those communities that are at the heart of this. So Mitzi? Well, first of all, they, they would represent a, a strong portion of the, the people surveyed, so it's their voice. And um, I think, you know, take away the sentiment that people are open uh, that there is an openness to diversity, and um, I, I really liked uh, John's approach is allow them to get to know you, all of you, and uh, the talents, the skills, and the hopes that you have for, for this region. So I would I'll, say be open. Well, I, I would uh, hope that they would take encouragement from that sense of openness that, that Mitzi talks about, but also take it as a bit of a license to push harder and to pressure people like me to, uh, to do more. John? Agreed. I mean, I think it's both of those things. I mean, be open. You know, one of the perils, I suppose, of multiculturalism, the way we used to celebrate it, was that everybody kind of did their own thing. Mm. And, and aside from sort of, uh, what do we used to call it? Caravan. Caravan. Things like that. <laughs> you know, if you really thought about it, there wasn't this real attempt to weave people together. And now I think we get the fact that you've actually got to weave people together and get them to know each other. And then they'll recognize the talent that exists all over the place in the community. You know, one community to another, one age group, one gender, one sexual orientation, doesn't matter. And we can then harness the whole team to do what we know now that everybody recognizes in our collective self-interest. Last question before we turn it over to the audience, and that is, what do we do next? I mean, this has been an incredible achievement in five years to get this going and to get people really thinking about it, and there are next steps. So what are those next steps? Mitzi? Well, one of the, one of the aspects of the report that we haven't talked about was actually there are very little downsides to this. 
you know, there, when people could not come up with any reasons not to do this. So I think that part of our, our next steps has to be, well, how do we, what are, what are the approaches, what are the practical things that corporations need in order to expand their, their talent pool? Uh, what do boards need in order to become more comfortable with this? And how do we create those networks? So, I mean, we're really thrilled that our Diversity Fellows Program is relaunching um, as of today, and we're opening uh, our doors for applications because we see that as one mechanism uh, to ensure that there is that available talent pool, the next leadership opportunity that's available. Alan, what should people be thinking about when they walk out of this room, and what are your next steps? Well, uh, there, there are four things I, I think uh, we can talk about from the Maitre perspective on this. Uh, one is the Diversity on Board program, which has uh, been recognized by the UN as a highly successful innovation. And uh, so we're going to be uh, moving forward with that. Uh, it, there's international interest in it now. Uh, there's interest in seven other cities across Canada for it. So that's going to be uh, uh, ramped up and uh, spread more widely. Uh, secondly, uh, we're going to have a bunch of elections coming up. Our School for Civics boot camp for people running for office will be in full operation again and encouraging people from diverse backgrounds to run for office and be involved in campaigns. The, um, uh, our governance awards, uh, diversity and governance awards, will continue to shine a, a spotlight on people who are doing well. You know, catching people doing something right is always a good strategy. <laughs> and, and then fourthly, we're very pleased we're going to be uh, uh, produce a new piece of research in partnership with the Toronto Local Health Integration Network. Uh, on, on, uh, and with Mount Sinai Hospital as well on diverse leadership in the healthcare sector, and that's going to be out in the fall, and I think that'll shine another uh, useful light on, on progress. John, next steps. Don't assume it's somebody else's challenge. I think the more we can reach out to people and identify one by one, people who head corporations, head charities, head uh, political parties and government organizations, and join them to this cause just to sort of buy in, which many of them will, I mean, just if they are asked to think about it for a minute, and realize it's a massive competitive advantage for us to have access to this huge pool of talent from around the world and say, all right, you've got to do something about it. And, you just, and it isn't much. I mean, you just have to sort of do some things to bring those people in, make them part of your talent pool, make them part of your leadership structure. Uh, and if you need to get help, ask for it. But I think we have to sort of stop assuming that we're waiting around for old so-and-so to do this or for some politician to lead the way. It's got to be just about leadership, and it's about leadership in all sectors by a much broader number of people. Well said. To the audience we go, and there's uh, microphones, we can go over here. Uh, if you have a question, if you can just, A, make sure that it's a question, and B, uh, if you have somebody that you want to, <laughs> rather than a speech, which sometimes happens, uh, as a guy, he says, who talks for a living, uh, but also focus in on one of the uh, members of the uh, panel. Go ahead. Uh, my question is for Mr. Tory. Uh, you've been in government uh, since uh, the wonderful years of uh, Bill Davis, and you've uh, led uh, Rogers but now you're in the media. How uh, diverse have we become in terms of capturing the essence of uh, what Toronto stands for, which is uh, you know, um, uh, diversity being our strength? So um, looking within the position that you have now, how diverse have we truly become, or are we just focused on governments and business only? 
Great question, he said. Yep, I think um, the media is better than it was, but not as good as it needs to be. And I think that it's better, I mean, I'll be really honest, I think it's better on television where there's pictures and therefore people are more inclined to sort of see and understand. Because oftentimes when you hear a voice, you don't really know, you know, what kind of background the person has or when you read something in the newspaper. Yeah. So I think the media is better than it was, but nowhere near as good as it needs to be. Not just because you want to have the requisite number of people from different backgrounds, but because the perspective they bring to bear in doing their writings and doing their work, I think will be valuable to all of us. And then the second point, I just want to make on that is I think we're not doing as well sometimes on the way we cover things. And I'll be honest about this, and I have been when I've been on the radio, which is that, you know, we are inclined oftentimes to pay far more attention to some of the bad things. It's back to that point you made a minute ago, but never miss an opportunity to highlight good things people are doing. But if you look at some of the communities, I'll name one that I'm very familiar with, the black community in this city. If you look at how the media portrays that community, uh, I've often said the Harry Jerome Award should be carried on national television every year so people can see what's going on in that community. But instead, what often happens is a tiny minority of people who get involved in you know, activities uh, that, that are less savory are, are highlighted, and uh, we've got to work on that kind of thing. And uh, I don't know how you do that, because news is news, but it's certainly a challenge, I think, that lies in front of us in terms of making sure that people are portrayed through the media in a fair way and that we sort of are embracing everybody as opposed to otherwise. Thank you very much. Uh, question over here. Go ahead. I, first of all, thank you very, very much for all your uh, input today. And um, I'm an advocate for... Uh, accessibility and disability. And I just, by a show of hand, I would like to know how many here have heard or know about the AODA. Good, I'm so glad. For people uh, who don't know, can you explain what it is? The AODA is the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act. And I always say that this disabled people are one of the largest, if not the largest, minority in Ontario. We're 15% of self identified persons with disabilities. And yes, it is difficult for immigrants, I'm an immigrant myself, to find employment. And somebody gave a very high number that billions would be put into the economy if immigrants were to have jobs. I would say that persons with disability who are highly qualified lack the resources to actually be able to come back to the workplace. So my question is, uh, how can us, the community in general, civil uh, society and the business community, support persons with disability to be part of this conversation? Thank you very much for your question. Um, Alan? Are we, and, and how do we, I guess, broaden uh, what we want to talk about when we're talking about diversity as well, perhaps? Well, this has highlighted uh, an incredibly important issue for, you know, for Toronto, for Ontario, for Canada. Uh, at, at my colleague Sherry Torchman from the Caledon Institute is here today and she's done a lot of tremendous work on, on disability and, and uh, the challenges and uh, relative lack of opportunities facing people living with disabilities. Uh, I don't have immediate answers but I would suggest you go to the Caledon website and look at some of Sherry's work on that but you've highlighted an incredibly important issue. I guess the other issue is just I mean, that fact of, of what we call <laughs> Uh, diversity? Are we being a bit too narrow in how we define diversity? Yes. 
I, I just wanted to say that um, oftentimes the challenges are very similar. It's about someone opening a door and giving an opportunity. And, uh, and for people with disabilities, um, their contributions are often underestimated and undervalued mm. until you experience working together with them. So it's really, it's, you know, young people also face this, uh, particularly for marginalized communities as well. It's about that first opportunity, and we really need to, to start opening doors and, and becoming more and more um, open and accommodating because once people get into the door they they really wow us and are incredibly uh, valuable assets. You won't find a business leader Matt that has, has shown leadership on, on employing disabled people who won't say it has, has been other than a complete success yeah. you know and and if you look beyond that though and say all right what else I mean we're broke right now as it's sort of our governments are broke um, if we can have give people the dignity of a job uh, who are disabled uh, and they can then work and become contributing citizens as opposed to being more reliant on government programs, that's going to be a help. So there's two wins in that. And then finally, the simple reality, and that's why I end up making the business case yeah. at the time because I just find with some people it's easier. We are going to have a labor shortage in this very place right here. It's hard to believe right now with the unemployed we have, but in 2020 there will be a labor shortage. We are going to need everybody to work besides the dignity of them having a job, besides the fact that it reduces dependence on government. We need them to work, and it's the right thing to do. So to me, I don't understand why we don't all get on with this um, and, and each just put a little focus on it and then get some tools and make it happen because it can. Those who've tried it will say it can happen and it's a success. All right. We have time for a couple more questions. Go ahead down there. Somebody has a microphone, I believe. Oh, there you are. Uh, hi. hi, Matt, and uh, this is open to the panel. Um, over a year ago, or just over a year ago, I was in Ottawa at a, at a session almost like this, and we had more than 200 people in the room. There were 14 newcomers, and the rest were people from different government agencies. Uh, what I noticed is that many of those agencies were for provinces beyond Ontario, and they were talking with a lot more passion they were talking with a lot more currency as compared to our 18.9 years, nine years. And they were talking with a lot more drive. And they were talking about pulling people out of Ontario and out of, out of BC. So it's not just about newcomers coming into Canada. It's also about the people that we have here. How are we going to prevent them from being brain drained into the other provinces? That's a great question. Thank you very much. Um, we can go to John, naturally. Well, I mean, you know, I think the part of the problem is our aspirations are being set too low. I mean, we, we, if you think about the kinds of discussions we've been having recently about how we're going to create jobs in the city and sort of the things we've been turning to as answers to that and say, is that really, you know, how we're going to create jobs for kids and to make this a magnet, which it once was. And I think it still is in, in a remarkable way, the 150,000 or whatever people that come here every year. So I think we just have to set all of our aspirations on economic development, all the things we've talked about. I mean, if this becomes a beacon for disabled people where they know they can find employment and will be embraced and, you know, you go down the list, people from all nationalities, and we also have the skills matching the jobs, you know, and so on. It's all together. But, I mean, right now I think we've sort of, we're resting on our laurels for the last 25 years and saying we've got it made here, which we do. Yeah. But, you know, you can't sit still. So, to me, it's, again, it comes back to leadership and encouraging people to take the steps we've talked about up here, all of them. Alan, what about for you? I mean, you're somebody who knows all about the prosperity of cities and the prosperity of regions and how to build on that prosperity. Well, I, I think what's interesting about it, the, these comments and these questions and what we've been talking about is that there, there really is no separate set of things that we need to do for immigrants or people of diverse backgrounds or people with disabilities or uh, uh, you know, people who live in poverty that it all goes back to very basic building a sound society. And there are certain things that are fundamental elements. Affordable housing, supportive housing, a good transit system, 
you know, re reasonable transitional programs for people who have language issues. Uh, th those are things that we have been able in the past to produce very successfully. And we shouldn't forget that this is a thriving, prosperous urban region. Uh, you know, in the last 25 years, Toronto has uh, come onto the international radar and is now consistently the Toronto region being shown as one of the top 10 or so cities in the world. But this do you worry that our guest says that other regions speak of this with more passion, that other people are more fired up about this well, and seem to want to put a brick on the accelerator yeah, what and we, make this go forward? Exactly, and, and I think what we need to understand is that uh, we're in competition with all sorts of other regions who are making these investments and putting these things in place and have more passion for these things than we do. And we need to fix that. We and the can people below that. number one are always hungrier. And we're still number one. We still are in this country and in the world. But yeah. people below number one are always hungrier. So you have to stay hungry. Yeah. One last question, I believe, from the audience. Go ahead. Yes, thank you very much for these insights and encouragement to develop. Um, I'm Nick Polk, affordable housing uh, apartment uh, developer and builder. I put up 164, and my families there represent 23 different countries. And the sense of community building, the sense of relationship to the rest of the city has been very important. Also a diverse board. I'm working on another 250, but I need some members on the board of diverse backgrounds. So I guess I, I go to Ratna, or where is my best uh, source to look for that because many of my residents many of my residents are going to be from other countries also thank you thank you very much i'd be happy to offer up ratna to solve this problem <laughs> <laughs> in her absence she will help us um this is the kind of conversation i think john's absolutely right that is at the center of of the city and the region and and we need to get it right um, there's been a lot of great work that's been done we could talk about this for hours but i hope that we will come back in five years and talk about more great work that's happened in the meantime. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, Matt. Please welcome Alison Lowe. It's going to come back and wrap things up for you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Um, Nick, thank you. It's always a delight to begin a lunch with a little bit of evidence. So thank you for allowing us to, uh, to for setting that stage so, so nicely for all of us. Um, Mitzi, John, Alan, and Matt, I don't know uh, what else to say but thank you. Um, for your personal leadership, for the leadership of the organizations you represent to these very important issues. Um, in, a, in addition to the substantial economic and cultural benefits that our diverse community brings, I think there's also something very important in how much it touches each of us personally. Um, when I moved to Toronto uh, 13 years ago, I came from a, a town where diversity was Catholics and, and Protestants. And I knew when I came here what an incredible opportunity it was to experience a much wider swath of the world by just stepping out of the front door. Um, and each of you personally has enriched, I think, all of our lives with your leadership in this area. So thank you all very, very much for being here. Thanks to everybody in the audience. Thank you to RBC. Um, and uh, as Matt said, may we go forth and have just as successful of five years as we have just seen. Um, now, this formally concludes today's event, um, although of course you're all welcome to stay and chat as long as you'd like, um, as well as our television programming which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. Uh, we are also very grateful to Rogers and to 680 News for their continuing coverage of Canadian club events. I wish everyone a very happy afternoon. 
a very diverse and fruitful five years ahead. And uh, enjoy the rest of your day. This meeting is adjourned. Thank you.